welcome to Professor Meets Student, a new podcast about academic research. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. My name's Tamara Walsh. Um, I'm currently at the University of Queensland in law school. Excellent. Uh, so I see you studied both law and social work. Why did you pick those two fields? Well, like most 17-year-olds, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, actually. Um, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I always assumed that I would be a courtroom lawyer and that I would be an advocate. And um, I was interested in social justice issues. And so social work seemed to be um, a good thing to do alongside of that. Um, Obviously, I considered all the other dual degrees. I was very lucky at the University of New South Wales at that time that they were offering social work and law combined. That's very rare, and in fact, they may not even still offer it. Um, so I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time where both of those were offered at once, and I had a fantastic education. Um, doing those both at the same time was, was very challenging, but it was very enlightening, and I learned a lot about how the law impacts on different social groups and also about how much um, law and legal difficulties social workers encounter in their everyday lives. I can see definitely how that relates to your research that you're currently doing. Was there something in particular kind of as a student when you're actually studying that piqued your interest? Because I know you study kind of disadvantaged social groups at the moment. Yeah, actually, um, I think it was in my first year that um, one of my lecturers Professor Prue Vines actually um, talked a bit about prisons and and about um, the kinds of conditions that prisoners um, live with and and that was one thing but she then went on to describe how um, most people in prison are very disadvantaged, come from very disadvantaged homes, often um, have been under the care of the state um, in terms of child protection, um, often have mental health issues often have physical health issues, often have acquired brain injuries. Um, and all of those things I suppose I didn't really know much about at that age and so that was um, a real eye-opener for me. And from that moment actually I started really looking for the connections between the work I was doing in social work and law. And it very much influenced what I ended up doing after I graduated. Um, I, as I say, I, I initially thought that I would be a courtroom advocate and I quickly realised that actually I wanted to be more of a um, systems advocate and that's how I, I suppose I've ended up in the position I'm in now. So when you say systems advocates, um, could you expand on that a little bit? I suppose what I realised, particularly through my social work, because I did three placements as a social work student, so I was in social work settings working um, under the supervision of social workers and I realised then that um, the everyday work that you do with clients is really, really important. Um, because you can make a difference in individuals' lives, but it's also extremely frustrating because you find yourself dealing with the same issues with different people over and over again. And that's really hard because you feel as though the systems are all against them. And actually on my final social work placement, my supervisor said to me, I don't know if you're cut out for this kind of casework role. And I think she was right because I found it very upsetting and very frustrating. And so I took her advice and um, 
and started to look for employment in situations where I was able to influence the systems that were causing some of the problems that I saw my clients facing um, rather than I suppose dealing with the individual issues that, that people had um, whilst recognising how very important that work is. Uh, possibly it wasn't the right thing for me at that point. You've definitely looked at kind of the system's advocacy for vulnerable people. What do you think this says about you as a person? Well, as I say, I had a great education. I was to told what was going on in the world at a time in my life where I suppose I was open to hearing it. And I think that's something I constantly struggle with in my work now is how you present an argument that's a very good argument that's important to help people but that's palatable and I suppose that's the good thing about working with young people is that they have perhaps more of an open mind and as a young person myself I had an open mind to that sort of thing. Um, I care very much about, um, about the world and the injustices that I see within it um, but lots of people do and in fact you know what I realize in my work is just how many people work with vulnerable people not just in law but in social work and health settings and mental health settings and there's many 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 people out there who care very much about these issues and I'm just one very small link in a very very long chain. Yeah well that's excellent to hear um, and one other thing before we move on what kind of advice would you give maybe to a student who's possibly starting out the university career? What are, what should they be looking to do? There's so many different pieces of advice that you can give young people and it's a very different world now to the one that I was in. You know, when I started university in the 90s, everyone who had a degree got a job. So there's all those um, new pressures on students, I think, to choose what they want to do but also to choose wisely. Um, and I think there's a lot more pressure these days on students building their CV and we didn't have that pressure when I went through. So I was able to focus on my, my studies and to get the most out of my education. I think it's very unfortunate that students um, today um, feel under pressure to not do that, feel under pressure to, um, to always be working towards a mark rather than learning. So in terms of how you should approach your, approach your university studies, I would say um, come to university to learn and trust me if you learn you'll get the marks um, don't just be focused on the marks all the time um, the marks will come if you're a good learner and I think most students either don't believe that or don't realize that um, and perhaps, perhaps it is because there are so many pressures on them today but I still think that that holds true I'd love to see students trying to get more out of their education I'd like to see them take on their lecturers more ask more questions engage more so in terms of being a student at university that's the that's the key piece of advice that I would give in terms of choosing a career I think that's very different because as I say I think you've got to choose wisely but I think also you have to choose something that you care about and that you, that's not going to make you miserable and um, that's different for everyone but the, I suppose in terms of career progression and development one thing I do always say to students who I have a lot to do with is don't sweat the first decision you know whatever you whatever you do first is not necessarily what you're going to do next and really once you get that first job you can go anywhere you want to go after that um, so whatever that first job is it really doesn't matter and over the years I've seen many students graduate to jobs that perhaps they weren't their ideal first jobs who've gone on to do exactly what they wanted to do. Um, it's just a series of stepping stones that you've got to be willing to jump through. Um, so don't expect to get where you want to be straight away. Um, sometimes you just have to want it and work for it a bit harder. 
that's excellent to hear. Definitely great advice, because especially on a broad range of students as well. Moving on, as I talked to you before we actually started the podcast, um, just a book recommendation um, that people could read if they're interested, kind of maybe in law, but also in something else possibly. Probably the book that I recall having the greatest impact on me was um, The Lowest Rung by Mark Peel. And the reason why that um, appealed to me is because he, he, he did some research with individuals where he spoke to disadvantaged individuals about their lives, but he didn't approach it um, in the way a, a researcher generally would with a series of questions. He allowed them to set the agenda and and to tell them what they thought was important about their lives and their experiences. And to me, um, that's extremely important. It's something I try to do in my own work is not to be too legal in my research. Um, I think the instinct of a lawyer is to pepper people with questions and to try and get out of people um, what you want to hear, what you think you're going to hear. The social worker in me holds back and, and says, tell me what you want to tell me and, and I want to hear that. So... Um, it had a huge impact on me professionally. It also had a big impact on me um, personally because it spoke very truthfully about what it is actually like to struggle. Um, and struggle in a financial sense is not something I've had to experience. And so to hear that from people, to hear how difficult that is, um, is very meaningful. Okay, that's a really great recommendation. I will have to definitely pick up a copy. <laughs> All right, so moving on to your uh, research, talking about uh, your two, one of your two recent articles that you published um, last year, particularly on uh, the independent legal observers and the public order policing. So could you just start off with a general kind of explanation on what that actually means? Sure. Well, the reason I became interested in independent legal observers was because we have an ongoing problem in Queensland and elsewhere, in many jurisdictions in Australia and around the world, where people are criminalised for very low-level criminal behaviour. So in Queensland, we have an offence called the public nuisance offence, which is really just if you are um, potentially making someone feel uncomfortable, annoyed or fearful in their space, um, you can potentially be charged with this criminal offence. Um, that's problematic because it, when you look at the people who come through the courts on this offence, range, the range of different fact scenarios is massive. I've seen people be charged with public nuisance for attempting suicide in public, vomiting in public, um, climbing McDonald's restaurants, right through to engaging in pretty intimidating behaviour, particularly um, by men towards women. So there's this massive spectrum of, of criminal acts, I suppose, in inverted commoners that, that can be, um, that can come within this offence. And that's problematic because it means that a lot of people are criminalised who probably shouldn't be. And the impact of criminalisation on people is massive um, because if they are charged with low-level offences enough, uh, they can end up with either thousands of dollars worth of fines that they can't pay, say, if they're very vulnerable people. Um, they can end up being charged for, for things that they couldn't control, perhaps because they urinated in public because they're homeless or because perhaps they were drinking alcohol in public um, but they didn't have any other space to go, like young people, or um, perhaps they um, engage in other low-level criminal behaviour like um, shoplifting or sleeping in the street or begging. Um, all these kinds of things can be criminalised when people can't really control them. So... 
there's a lot of reasons why offences like public nuisance are problematic. So people like me who are engaged in this kind of work are always thinking about how we could prevent that and whether the answer is in building a better court system that can deal with people appropriately and put therapeutic intervention in place. That's one option. Uh, another option is to um, try and avoid people being criminalised in the first place. So to try and avoid that initial charge by police. And that's where independent legal observers can play a role because they are, well, in this particular study, they were trained lawyers who went out and observed police behaviour in a particular um, circumstance. That was the G20 in Brisbane. But they can be used for all different things and have been all over the world. Um, where they're just out there in public spaces watching what police are doing, watching the kinds of interactions they're having with vulnerable people, and I suppose trying to dissuade just by their mere presence um, police officers from instituting a charge where they perhaps didn't need to. So that was why I was interested in legal, independent legal observers in that study because they offered one potential means of preventing that initial charge. In fact, what I found in that study was that while they were very useful in that particular setting, possibly not the kind of thing that could be, say, rolled out more generally to public spaces. So what we initially had in mind in that study was maybe independent legal observers could be used in situations where um, people who are homeless tend to congregate. Maybe if there were independent legal observers there at night when people tend to be charged, there would be less charges. And in fact, the balance of opinion from the um, independent legal observers that I spoke to was that mm, probably it's not the sort of thing that could be rolled out. And so we scrap that and we move on to other potential ways of dealing with that situation. Um, and as I say, there are many options. There are many alternative options. Yeah, well, particularly with the controversies that are currently happening with sort of protests, particularly in the US, but also in Australia, and the sort of violence that is occurring, what are the other, some of the other options at least? Well, I mean, as I say, with this particular study, I wasn't so interested in protest. I was more yeah. interested in the role that independent legal observers can play to prevent criminalisation. So I suppose I was looking at um, independent legal observers from a different perspective than others might be. I certainly think there are problems with criminalising protest behaviour, but that's not so much what I'm interested in. More what I'm interested in is the criminalisation of people who are vulnerable and who are subject to criminal charges merely because of their vulnerability. So that's what interests me. Um, in terms of how you can deal with that and, how, and alternatives for addressing that particular issue, um, well, what I've learnt recently is that they do things a lot better in the United Kingdom. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, very few people, in certain parts of the United Kingdom, very few people are criminalised with these low-level criminal offences. Instead, um, police exercise their discretion to deal with those matters differently. So they might issue a caution or they might refer someone to a treatment service or they might refer them to a housing provider. Um, that to me makes a lot more sense than bringing people before the criminal courts to receive a fine that they can't pay. So I know you uh, also wrote another article on the 10 years of public nuisance mm. in Queensland. Is it, so you're more talking about the fact not that the legislation is wrong, perhaps, but how the legislation is interpreted by the police and in the courts? Mm. I objected to the legislation when it was brought out in 2005. Um, but the thing you learn as, <laughs> as a legal academic, I suppose, is once the legislation's out there, often there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So 
yes, I objected to the legislation. We fought that legislation. We fought the public nuisance offence very, very hard, um, but it was still brought in. And so now we have to deal with the fallout. Now, when the public nuisance offence was created, I was told by the then government that this would not lead to an increase in people being charged with nuisance-type behaviour. That is patently not turned out to be the case. And that's what that article showed, is that actually over the last 10 years, the number of people charged with public nuisance has increased hugely, partly because of the introduction of ticketing, so the issuing of infringement notices to people. Um, so we now have around 30,000 people being charged with public nuisance every year. That's astronomical compared to other jurisdictions in Australia. So what that demonstrates to us is that, A, yeah, the public nuisance is a, was a bit of a silly offence in that it can capture, as I said, lots of different kinds of behaviour, not just the kind of behaviour that really causes social harm and should be criminalised, um, but also that unlike what was anticipated by the government that drafted it, um, in fact, police are using that offence to criminalise lots and lots of people in situations where perhaps there are better ways of dealing with the conduct that led to the charge. So now we've shifted our focus to, well, we have this law in place. We can see that lots of people are being charged. What can we do about it now? Um, and I suppose that's where, you know, the, the legal advocate in me comes out and says, well, we should be challenging more of these cases within the courts. And so part of that study was having a look at um, how people have challenged public nuisance charges within the courts and how you might argue um, that the person shouldn't have been charged. So thresholds of what nuisance is and how serious the offence needs to be before it is criminalised through the courts, what sorts of penalties you could apply that are more appropriate. So that's my focus at the moment. Okay, that's really interesting. I was also wondering, before this legislation was put in place, could the people, because it's such a broad range especially, could the people have been charged on other offences? Um, there was an offence, that previously the offence was um, obscene language, etc. That was what it was called. So it was things like obscene language, um, offensive behaviour. So it was a, it was a pretty broadly worded offence. Certainly people were charged under it, um, but it formed part of what, what was the Vagrant Scamming and Other Offences Act which contained a lot of other offences that really did overtly criminalise homelessness. So being without, being found without sufficient lawful means of support, for example, was an offence. So people could be charged on, on the strength of that for not having any funds on them. So it was a way of criminalising homelessness. Now, the good thing about that act, now that we look back, was that not many people were being charged under those offences because they were patently discriminatory and so they tended not to be used. You'd get a couple of people charged here and there, but when those cases were contested before the courts, often they were thrown out. So police officers stopped charging people with those offences. So you definitely get some people charged um, and you get people charged with offensive behaviour. But it seems that the threshold has been reduced now with public nuisance. And as I said at the time, the risk with renaming this offence, which is similar but different, um, the risk with renaming it public nuisance as opposed to offensive behaviour is that public nuisance has the potential to capture a lot more things. Before you even look at the actual drafting of the provision, even just calling it public nuisance implies that what we're, what we're intending to do is capture not just behaviour that is offensive, but behaviour that is nuisance-like. And so my argument at the time was that you're necessarily going to widen the net of people that you charge. And it turns out I was right. 
So yes, I would argue that the wording of the section has had a huge influence on the number of people who are charged. And I was just wondering to kind of flip your research a little bit, can you come up with any positives of the new public nuisance legislation? Well, as I said in that article, I think there's definitely a place for it. And maybe I wouldn't have said that a few years ago. Um, but when I when I did look through all the cases, I realised that some people are being charged with public nuisance for what is essentially intimidating or threatening behaviour. So there are a few cases that I found where men were charged with public nuisance for, for example, following a woman into the women's toilets or following a woman and daughter down the street um, for an unreasonable period of time. Now, those sorts of behaviours don't meet the threshold, perhaps, for any other criminal offence, but they're still wrong. And and I, I must admit, when I came across those cases, I didn't necessarily object to that person being dealt with by the criminal law. Certainly wouldn't want to over-criminalise, but that shouldn't happen, really, and people should know that that's not okay. So... To the extent that public nuisance criminalises that kind of intimidating and threatening behaviour, I think there's a place for it. But I don't think that there's a place for criminalising vulnerable people just because of their vulnerability. So to the extent that public nuisance is used in that way, I'm very much against it. But to the extent that it's used to prevent intimidating and threatening behaviour, I think there's definitely a place for it. So you've talked about definitely kind of this affecting vulnerable people in terms of homelessness, in terms of people who might not have the financial means at the moment, uh, in terms of young people. Have you looked at how it affects uh, people with disability? Um, not formally. Um, and of course, disability is a wide term. The extent that it, it impacts people with mental health issues, it's something we've tried to measure, but it's very difficult to, to get that information because there's only a very small number of reported decisions. Um, and when people come before the court for these offences, often their mental health status isn't mentioned. So it's something we've tried to measure, but whenever we try to measure it, we never do a very good job of it. And we know we're only catching a few matters where mental health is a problem or acquired brain injury is a problem. Um, so it's very, very difficult to get that information. And I think that's a common theme in Australian research on mental health and acquired brain injury, it's really hard to get the information. So short of pulling all the files and getting ethical clearance to do that, it's really difficult to accurately measure uh, just how many people with mental health issues are being criminalised with this offence. And even then, you wouldn't get all of them. So the way we try and collect that information is to speak to lawyers who work with um, people who, who tend to be charged with public nuisance. And overwhelmingly, they will tell you that people with mental health issues are far more likely to be charged with public nuisance than anyone else. Um, but that's purely anecdotal. And as I say, very, very difficult to get hard data to that effect. Well, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you for sitting down with me. Um, and I hope, you know, your future research goes well. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.